Well, good morning again. And I do just want to say that it really genuinely is a joy and an I think, to gather with you. At least it is for me, deep in my soul and in my heart. I love these moments. And I really even think a lot of times as uh, maybe this is my dadness coming out as I, as I start to think about family dinners and these moments of uh, stillness or, or like gathering with one another. Um, I, I've started to see that in the, these moments. It's like, yeah, this is not where most of our family life is lived. We get that. Most of the family life is out there. It's doing those other things. But there's something that matters. There's something that's important about getting the family together and looking at the eyes and being near to each other and kind of like sighing with one another, rejoicing with one another, like just being present in these moments with one another. And I think a lot of that is what this is, is what's happening and kind of the rhythms of a family of faith is that we're gathering here to celebrate, to be, to just exist with one another in a different kind of way that reorients, re-centers and kind of like makes us rethink all that it is that we would sort of find our hands working toward throughout the rest of the week and through other moments. And we think that there are other ways to do this. It is not just Sunday morning corporate gatherings, but we think that there's value in this. Uh, but one of those ways is, is like small groups, things throughout the week, other ways to find yourself gathering together with your family of faith, with those that you are at the work of the kingdom with, and that you would find yourself sort of being uh, refilled and refreshed in those moments. And so we appreciate that you would be here with us and that you would do these things um, and I think I, I appreciate it for you in some sense. It's beyond just like, you're not here for me. It's like, this is, this is for us as a family. And so we think it matters, and I love it, and I'm thankful that you guys are here with us. I'm going to read our passage for us this morning, and then we're going to hop right into the sermon. So this comes from John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Give you a second if you want to turn there in your Bible that you brought with you. Or pretend like you're reading your Bible on your phone. What, what did I say that out loud? That was rude. John chapter 8 verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old. They said to him, and you have seen Abraham? 
Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing in our series this morning through the creed. And this is one of the moments where we're kind of taking this time to unpack and to rethink what it is that we say we believe. And we're doing this in concert with or alongside of the Easter season that we find ourselves in. This week and next week, we'll be focusing on the largest section of the creed, which is all about the sun. If you haven't thought through the structure of the creed, I'm not that surprised. But the sort of five chunks of what we're confessing that we believe every Sunday. The first little section is that we believe in the Father, God the Father. And there are two big sections on the Son. The first is His divinity. We believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, one Lord. And it's a, a section on His divinity, His godness, His divine power. And then there's another section that is about His humanity. And then the fourth section is that we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the church. And so we're going to focus on this morning the divinity of Jesus. And next week, Kyle will walk us through his humanity and incarnation. But I want to say this on the very front as we talk about Jesus' divinity on one Sunday and his humanity on the next. We must hold the two together at all times. And this is sort of the paradox and the tension of who Jesus is, the God-man. It is both at all times. And we must recognize this above all else because this is what allows us to say together that he is Christ our Lord. His humanity and his divinity. And we cannot miss it. And the creed very clearly does not want us to miss this because it is the section that we spend the most words on. Jesus, fully human, fully God. Fully king and fully our Lord. And we say this every Sunday. We confess this. This is what we believe. And as we're doing this, this series is supposed to be a confession of what it means to actually live into resurrection life. We're in the great 50 days of Eastertide. Many of you have probably never heard that and you're like, what does Easter have to do with the ocean? What we're doing is we're taking this moment and this time to celebrate the, the fact that we are invited into the life of God, the joy of resurrection. We're being invited in to continue to hold on to the hope and joy and excitement of what is Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Collectively, the church for thousands of years now has said, no, we're going to do this for 50 days, longer than Lent on purpose. We prepare, we give up things, we abstain through the season of Lent to prepare our hearts so that we can actually enjoy the glorious freedom of resurrection and life of God that we sang about this morning, that we are invited into. And yet, I think for you, and I know for me, for a lot of us, it is kind of hard to sustain celebration. It's difficult to, to sort of find yourself continually celebrating, continually reveling in the joy and the hope and the peace that we were so excited about and dressed up for on Easter Sunday. 
Now, I, I think that because of that, the difficulty to do these things, the difficulty to stay in it, that it oftentimes gets ignored. It's our human inclination to rush past it. We do the same thing with Christmas that we do with Easter and so many other celebrations. We find ourselves caught up in the moment and then we move on and we never stop to actually let the reality of the thing set in. And so as we're walking the creed, what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to say, hey, we're Easter people, we're resurrection people, we're Jesus people. And that means something. And we believe we actually think this stuff is real and that it matters and that it changes our lives the way we live beyond just one or two days out of the year. And I actually think that learning to sit in celebration, learning to sit in feasting instead of always kind of focusing on ordinary or what we're called to give up or abstain from is a really great apologetic for the church. But it's the, I've said this several times as we have approached Easter, like these are the fun disciplines of being a Christian. And some of you may not even realize that it is a discipline to celebrate and to feast. You may not even realize that for thousands of years the church has called us as followers of Jesus to pick up good food and good drink and good company and to celebrate and enjoy life. To find just like fun in things, enjoyment in things. It is a discipline of being Christian. We don't talk about Christianity that way. We don't talk about Christianity as something that is like enjoyable. We don't talk about Christianity as being commanded to take delight in life and all that you find. We spend most of our time talking about the very things that we're supposed to be like not doing. But these are the things that we are for. And this is the things that when we stand up and we can, we believe in these things, what we're saying is that we believe in this kind of stuff, that it brings hope and enjoyment, peace and comfort. Part of the reason this is difficult to stand up and do and to continue in for 50 straight days of feasting is because things like the news are constantly in front of us. You are right to feel at odds within yourself, to hear me stand up and say that we are here to celebrate and enjoy the joy of the Lord this morning when we just had a prayer time that we had, recognizing the difficulties and the sin and the destruction and chaos that is always around us. This week may not have felt like a celebration to many of you. The hope of Easter and God's good news of the life and life abundant that is offered to all may feel way too far off. If you, like me, are addicted to new cycles, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a terrible thing, that is not what is uh, the problem here. You may have found yourself opening up however it is that you receive your news this week and thinking, dear God, not again. Are we seriously doing this? Like, didn't we just do this six months ago? And then as you were sitting in it and processing it and thinking it, you may have found yourself like, seriously, what am I supposed to do about it? Is there anything like that I can tangibly do today? Because like, I will, I'll do it. I'll give myself to it if I can stop 
opening the news and hearing about another person sensibly, senselessly killed. And we felt the heaviness of that. We felt the heaviness of it all year. And that's just the news cycle at a national level. I can look through this room and I've talked to some of you. Some of you that I know are at home as well are traveling far off or dealing with death on a personal level that never makes headlines or Twitter. Family members sick in the hospital, dreams and what's going to happen after college graduation. Like there are all sorts of things in our day-to-day life that like never even get a mention that you're struggling with. And you hear me say something like a Christian discipline is to celebrate and to feast and you feel at odds deep within yourself that you could celebrate, that you could enjoy yourself when there's so much pain and hurt in your life, so much brokenness that still needs healing. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think like we don't deserve to celebrate because I know the sin that I carry with me. And yet, that is why it is a discipline, because the Lord is inviting us into it. We feel overwhelmed by these realities that we see, and yet we're called to celebrate. I want to make clear here, this is not to belittle or ignore those difficulties. Many of you were probably raised in a similar uh, mind frame or uh, mindset that I was in church where it's just like, well, you just need to like worship a little harder. You need to just pray a little more and God will turn everything into good, right? And and there's a a shallowness there that, and I don't want to belittle those people either, but there was an attempt there for something good. They were recognizing something that there's good in the Lord, that the resurrection life is real, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But we don't want to like just think that that means we are to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to celebrate and to feast. Or that we're supposed to ignore those bad feelings over there of lamenting and sorrow and grief. And that we kind of leave them over there and we walk into this Christian life where we can just have joy and hope and everything's good positive vibes all the time. That's really empty and shallow and that's not what we're calling or being called to in the 50 days of Easter. We're not going to stand and pretend that Jesus will just make it all better. But what we're standing and proclaiming is that through Christ's death and resurrection, what we know is that God is on the side of those that live in the cruciform way of being. The cross does not say that, well, God will vindicate, or resurrection does not say that God will vindicate all of those who have felt uh, unjust suffering and like well the, there's some really bad things that happen to those really good people and resurrection says that one day it'll all work itself out no what Easter is reminding us of is that God is on the side of those who suffer in those moments and in those places and as you stand and suffer alongside of people as you learn to live sacrificially What we know with the proclamation of resurrection is that we are vindicated as we live the way that God himself came and lived among us. And that gives us reason to celebrate. We know that God is on our side as we live the ways 
into the wisdom, into the word, as our passage said, that Jesus calls us to. There's this saying that is centered around the practice of Sabbath. And when you get to your Sabbath moment, you're supposed to rest as if the work is done, even if it is not. You're to rest and and kind of imagine and, and cease working even if the work that you think that you need to be doing is not yet done. And I think in an Easter moment like this, when we start to talk about this, this suffering, this darkness, this difficulty, and we enter into the Easter life of celebration, like in some sense we're being called to celebrate as if all is good even if it is not. And I want to tell you that is not being disingenuous because what it actually is is as you grieve and you hold on to that, that allows you to celebrate more when you begin to grasp who Jesus really is. When you see how near he is to you in your lamenting, when you see how good he is in the moments of crying out and pain and suffering and that you recognize he is right there with you, that is the moment that allows celebration to begin to flood up. It does not change that pain that you are in. It does not magically fix it, and it will not just cease to exist. But because God himself is near to you in that moment, and we know through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we too will be vindicated with him, that life pours in and it rushes in in the moments of that pain, in the moments of those loneliness. Christ is there with us. And we begin to have these moments then where we stop and we pause on things like Sunday morning or Friday night dinners with friends. And I would encourage you in this next season or these next few weeks as we sit in the Easter season, out of your way to drink some good wine if you're 21 and older, okay? Go out of your way to enjoy some good food that you normally wouldn't necessarily buy. Go out of your way to hug someone that has been vaccinated. For the love of God, hug people if you can and it is safe to do so, right? Like enjoy the life that we have been given even if maybe you don't always feel like it because it is a reminder that God is good and he is near and as our passage stated that he is making a way that will allow those that follow in his footsteps that follow in his wisdom to not even see death now When we say these things, and we proclaim things like the creed, and we read a passage like John 8, what we oftentimes uh, do is we just kind of skip over, like, what is really happening in those moments, what we're really confessing. When I say things like what I'm saying, like, there's an arrogance to Easter. There's, like, a bit of, like, I don't know what you would want to call it, but, like, this way in which Easter, like... Seriously, like we're going to celebrate in the midst of all of this? You're going to make these claims? There's a controversy to these things. And our passage in John 8 is highly controversial, and it's supposed to be. And yet it's too easy for us to kind of read it and be like, oh yeah, of course Jesus is I am, and we move on. There's a controversy when we stand up and proclaim what we proclaim every Sunday in the creed. It's offensive. And if we're quite honest with ourselves, it oftentimes may even be a little bit embarrassing to us. It's really comfortable to kind of say it here. There's an ability we have to kind of stand up and claim these things when everyone else is saying them. But have you ever found yourself in that moment when you're in a conversation and you realize the direction it's going? If you've been there, you already know what I'm about to say, right? 
like you're in a conversation with someone, maybe it's someone that kind of believes or, or uh, it doesn't believe at all and they're talking to you, and, and it's like you realize you're about to almost be found out, that you actually take Jesus serious and, and you start to tighten up. This only is a unique experience to me. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. Because it happens that way, too. And someone's like, so what do you do? And you're like, well, uh, I work downtown. Because you don't want to say it. You don't want people to say, like, oh, you actually believe these things. Because it's hard to believe sometimes. It's hard to kind of walk into these things. And Jesus is making really outlandish statements here. So outlandish that the normal religious people of his day, and I want to be very kind to these people, they're not like necessarily wrong for wanting to think that Jesus is demon-possessed in this moment, okay? When someone stands among them and claims that they are the divine, that they can give life, when they start making statements that only God himself can make, the right response, in some sense, if you are like of right mind and have been following God, and, and these are people that know the law and are faithful, good followers of Yahweh, good Jewish people, to hear someone make a statement that they are the way of life is offensive. They think he's demon-possessed because he's doing really crazy things that don't add up with the way they see and understand the world to exist. They want to stone him. Now, I love the way he responds. I'm just going to say this as an aside, a fun exegetical moment here. That we notice that Jesus is accused of being a Samaritan, which like for Jews would have been a highly, highly offensive critique or comment to make towards someone. And I love that Jesus never denies being a Samaritan. There's like just a grace and a kindness that oozes out of Jesus even when he's being attacked. And I have the opposite of that most of the time. And so I see that and I'm like, man, that, that's why I love him, you know? Like it's why I love to follow after this, be able to respond that way. He's on the side of the marginalized and the outcast. Like as a Samaritan, for a Jew to not deny being a Samaritan, like if there were any Samaritans in earshot, like that would have been like salve to some wounds right there. And as Samaritans would have been reading this in later time, and other Jews, they would have, like, they would have been appalled as much of the, that he claimed to be God as that he didn't deny being a Samaritan. I mean, these are almost equal offenses in some sense. One's a little bit more, but you get the idea. I love that about this passage. He's making these crazy outlandish statements and simultaneously he's saying like, I'm here for those that feel the furthest away. But he continues on to say he's not demon possessed. In fact, he makes promises, as I said, that only God can make. He makes a promise of never seeing death. And this does not mean that we will magically have immortality. We confess on Ash Wednesday, but dust to dust, ash to ash. We understand that death is a part of this life. There is mystery, and there are things here that we know of the afterlife, and as we proclaim and we'll preach on later, that you know, there, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But we here in this temporal form that we are experiencing now will all face death. Jesus is not promising that escape from us. But I think if you start to parse it out, what he's actually saying is if you follow the wisdom of Jesus, if you, if you practice the way of his being, we talked about this in Lent, that there's death that we all experience over and over again. Dreams, hopes, 
ideal moments, uh, ideal pictures of ourselves. And in that, I think as we follow Jesus, what he's promising is that you won't even see death in that kind of way, and you will not fear the temporal death that is in front of us all. Because there's a greater trust in Jesus. And we can do this, have this trust, because we follow with Jesus in the line of his argument and his doubling down of his divinity in this moment. After claiming that he's not demon-possessed, he goes on to talk about seeing Abraham, and you should have had the same question that they had. How did you see Abraham if you are not yet even 50 years old? And Abraham would have existed thousands of years before Jesus was walking on earth and making this statement. And he speaks to something that none of us can speak to. He speaks to his eternal presence and existence. He claims that he's existed for eternity's past, And as we proclaim, he will exist for eternity's present and eternity's future. He always will be and he always has been. And he says this by saying, before Abraham, I am. A good Jew would have immediately went to Exodus and thought of Moses' statement when he says, what should I tell them? Who should I tell them sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. He again is claiming that he is fully God as a human being. Now... This is what is interesting. We have the Gospels helping us see Jesus' divinity. And I'm telling you that this should be controversial. Like that, that we would make these claims. Like this is hard to reckon with and to understand. The disciples did not have this. They did not have the Gospels outlining all the ways that Jesus proves or says or shows that he is divine. They're having to deal with this in real time. A very human Jesus in a very human moment making very outlandish claims. But here's where it gets good, in my opinion. And this is where this all connects around for me. Is what Jesus, or what the disciples are doing, and what we have in the Gospels, is this moment of them kind of in retrospect, understanding Jesus' divinity, because they've experienced his real life and tangible presence in his resurrection. Through the power of the Spirit, and as they gather together, Post Jesus' resurrection, there's this thing that is happening among them that proves his divinity. The Gospels do not prove his divinity, and I would even say for you and I in an apologetic conversation, based on this alone, we really can't prove his divinity. Like, like you would be hard-pressed because this is written by people that followed him and are making these claims, right? You can prove the historical Jesus, and at this point, that's pretty much not up for debate. No one's going to argue the historical Jesus. Everybody's going to have their own views and takes on him. But like that, that's, we, we've got enough evidence, historical evidence, that we can hold to that. Jesus is divine, though. The disciples, his followers, they begin to believe this and make these connections as they experience him. As you and I have experienced him. They do that by gathering together and his presence coming among them. By experiencing joy and peace when joy and peace should not be possible. By experiencing a comfort and calm in the face of great anxiety and frustration. By being face to face with tragedy and being overwhelmed by a sense of like it's all kind of there and being held together still. Even though our eyes are seeing nothing but everything fall apart. The disciples and the followers of Jesus experienced this. 
And that is the testimony that began to give credence to the divinity of Jesus. Not their words, but the experience of actually participating in the divine with him. Experiencing and participating in the life that God had always intended that his people would experience. This gives value to and truth and weight to Jesus' claim of divinity. Luke Timothy Johnson is where I've gotten this idea. He's a Catholic theologian. We're using his book as we go through this that's on the Nicene Creed. And what he says is there's this thing that happens where the Gospels exist not as like a, this is the obvious way that Jesus was divine, but it's a process of reflection of the human Jesus and his ministry of the Christian experience of him as resurrected Lord. So they experience the resurrected Christ 50, 60 years later. They experience that and they go, this is something different. This man was who he said he was. And as they reflected and looked back on Jesus' human life, they began to write out these narratives, to write out these stories so that we could see what they saw and understand what they saw. But what calls us to this, what brings us to this, is that same experience of the resurrected Christ in our own life. And that is the great invitation of Easter is to step into and to begin to experience the resurrected life, to experience the resurrected Jesus near to us, to actually believe these things, to actually think that Jesus makes a difference in what happens to me tomorrow, today, and two months from now, to actually think that if he did say these things that it's real and that that means something to me and to us. And we collectively say this together as a people that we believe this. And as we gather together and as we sit here in this room and as we sit in one another's homes and as we find ourselves praying with one another or discussing with one another, we get caught up in this life of God that is in defiance to what the reality seems to be. That's how we talk about the divinity of Jesus is by experiencing it with one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, we get to then alongside of the disciples look back and reflect on the human life of Jesus that has been beautifully and wonderfully recorded for us. And we can see his divinity and his goodness and his godness in the midst of his humanness. And it all adds up and we all hold it together. They experienced the life that he promised. It was not just simple words to them, but it was miraculous and mysterious. They experienced resurrection even though they had not yet physically died. This takes more than just human ascendance of the mind when we talk about things like social injustice and inequality and racism that still exists. What the Christian name to offer is that there is hope for that here and now, but it is just not human progression. It speaks to odds with both the liberal and conservative political ideologies of our day. What we say is that there is actually hope, that there is actually something to be tangibly given to the people that are experiencing this here and now, and that we should be burdened by it, and that we should be incensed by it, and that we should be able to stand up and fight for it alongside of them for justice and for mercy 
for our brown and black brothers and sisters that continue to experience things that I as a white man just like can't even fathom. But I hear them and I believe them because Jesus hears them and he believes them. But I cannot go to the liberal side of thinking that if we humans can just ratchet up enough goodwill and faith that like humanity will heal itself. What we know is that it's the work of Jesus and his divinity. It took God to save us. And I will not waver from that thought or idea, no matter how out of fashion it may become. And that's what we're saying we believe in the creed, that it took the God-man of Jesus to come and to dwell among us to bring this life to us. And as we invite others into it, they can begin to experience that life with us and see the hope that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for 50 days, we practice the discipline of that joy of resurrection in the face of what feels like hopelessness, what feels like all being lost, feels like being too dark or too gone to save. We practice the discipline of gathering together and saying we will celebrate because we know in Jesus that there is more to reality than what we see. That's what we practice every Sunday as we take communion. And so as the band comes up, We will partake in a feast. We will celebrate the good news of Jesus. And we will receive these elements as a way of being reminded. And as a way of tangibly receiving God's provision for us. His sacrifice for us. We come to this knowing that we are people in need of saving. And knowing that we have already been saved. And so we celebrate bread and in the cup. We celebrate knowing that God has done the work for us and he will continue to. We celebrate knowing that he has given everything, his life, so that we can partake and participate in it. And we celebrate knowing that we get to invite others into this feast, into this joy that is the life of a believer. We talk a lot about how it's really hard to be a Christian sometimes, but I think we need to be reminded that it's really, really good to come to this moment and to so freely receive so much, and to take and to have joy and to hope and peace. So as you hold the elements in your hand, take the bread that is the provision, that is God's body broken for you to sustain you and to propel you into his life and eat. The cup that was his blood poured out so that our sins may be forgiven and drink. Amen.